Good morning, crew. Welcome to this week's uh, online time of worship and reflection from the scriptures. If you have a copy of the Bible there in your living room or apartment, go ahead and open uh, to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 22 will be our text this morning uh, as we continue our series, All Things New. Just want to provide a, a word at the outset of uh, encouragement to you. Thanks for hanging in there. Like I know um, we're seven, eight weeks into um, this weird season in the life of our church and, and really, you know, more broadly in the life of our culture. And I know it's easy to get apathetic at this point to, to kind of check out. Um, and so just super encouraged by the ways that uh, you're continuing to lean in on Sundays to be a part of the things that we're doing, to log in online to your small group gatherings, to family meeting, um, and specifically to the ways that you're going uh, out of your way to give uh, love and care for one another. Like we just consistently hear stories of the way uh, that you're encouraging and ministering and bearing burdens and sharing resources. And uh, man, so, so keep it up. Uh, we're really uh, thrilled to hear of the ways that God is uh, uh, encouraging his church to, to lean in in the midst of crisis and uh, care for one another uh, until the time we can get back together again. Uh, in light of that, I did want to, to just uh, peg something on your calendar for next Sunday night. We will have our May family meeting. And uh, we're going to spend some time attempting to, as best we can, uh, answer the, you know, the oft-asked question right now, like when's, when, when are we going to be back together? And uh, we're going to take a run at uh, giving some uh, consideration to that, helping think through what you should expect, what we're trying to expect, we need from you, how we're going to communicate with one another. So please prioritize that time. Family meetings are always important, but particularly now when we're a bit more isolated from one another, they're going to be uh, even more important. So next Sunday night, 530, uh, we'll be together for uh, a Zoom call for our family meeting. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we uh, bow giving you thanks that your spirit's not uh, bound in any way, that you're uh, continuing to be uh, active and at work in the world, and uh, that you continue in unique ways to use uh, your word to minister to your people. And so we ask for that uh, this morning. We're particularly mindful as we bow of those who are uh, scattered around the world, missionaries in, in hard places who are bearing up under the weight of uh, this current cultural challenge, but doing so uh, in cultures that are already challenging. And uh, so we pray that you would give encouragement, um, that you would uh, empower them to persevere, and that in creative and useful ways that the gospel would go forward uh, during this time through the proclamation of your people. Uh, would you encourage uh, your folks here in Greenville and those listening in and other places uh, this morning as we consider what you're doing to, to make all things new? In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I believe it was the summer after I finished, I graduated from Furman, uh, had an opportunity to spend 10 days with a mission team in Iceland. Now, if that sounds like horrific to you and you're like, who in the world would want to go to Iceland? Let me encourage you that you all want to go to Iceland. It is the coolest place imaginable. Like I've never seen, and I've been to some cool places. I've never seen uh, a country like that. Just uh, the unique manifestation of God's creative handiwork in the world. I remember uh, riding in a van watching the northern lights dance in the sky uh, as we traveled up to the next morning, get up and uh, get to walk up 
to, uh, to look into a, a dormant volcano, like to stand and look over uh, inside and got to jump in a thermal pool, like while the outside temperatures hovered around like negative 20 and uh, just hang out there. It was fascinating. Now, some of that, like, uh, you know, on the brink of a volcano, you've heard people describe that reality to you, but like secondhand descriptions of what it looks like to stand on the edge of a volcano fall short. Like, unless you've experienced that firsthand, it's really hard to, for somebody else to communicate in words what that picture, what that reality is going to be like. That's a little bit like our challenge uh, this morning, and in fact, our challenge through all of this series. We're considering in words kind of secondhand reflections of realities that are really hard for our minds to grasp. We're reading from, particularly this morning, from John's future revelations about this time in eternity when God is going to put the world back together again. Specifically this morning, let's read from Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, and then this is where our phrase for this series, look, I'm making all things new. What I'd like to do this morning, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit, but what what I want to do is uh, provide four observations about this time when God's making all things new, and specifically around this theme of new heavens and new earth. What's God doing to make all things new in this new world? And then I want to spend a considerable time, or at least considerable points, making a bit of application for us this morning, some implications from this text for our lives. Um, Why do we want to shift the weight of our focus this morning to application? Um, At least two reasons. One, uh, there's a sense in which the terrain that we're going to cover this morning has at least been touched on in previous uh, sermons. The first five weeks of this series, we, we've at least seen glimpses of this eternal dwelling place, this new heaven and new earth mentioned in previous sermons. Last week, as we considered this new body uh, that we're going to inherit, we speak about this eternal place with some level of specificity. So since we've already covered some of this terrain, it makes sense to bend towards application and then also um, it's, it's appropriate for us to bend towards application on a week where we're going to consider our eternal place because uh, this eternal home isn't the main point of the Bible's story, nor is it the main point even of its descriptions of what is going to come in eternity. The focus isn't specifically on where we're going to be, but Who is this God who will dwell with his people? And who are the people who will dwell with this God? The place is somewhat incidental to the overarching conversation. What we're focused on is the nature of God and the people with whom he is going to 
dwell with for eternity. It's a bit like what we see in the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. The theme, the main theme, isn't on the mechanisms of the created world, but the God who created and those who were created in his image. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is just put a few pieces together and then apply this morning's sermon as well as some of the other texts that we've considered in this series. Four points of, of observation from the text, specifically from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. First, the new heavens and new earth, this eternal place, is coming. The new heavens and new earth are, are coming. This is specifically, in John's vision, a future tense reality. At a future time that no one knows, God declares that he is going to make all things new. We see this in the tense of the language in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. We see the consistent, I, I will, pointing us forward, uh, forward-facing to, to this time and place when God is going to complete his work of renewing all things. At this appointed time, we're told in other places in Scripture, Jesus will return and the world will be put back together. Now, while we see this new heavens and new earth are future tense realities, let's not lose sight of the focus that we are not meant, nor are we going to, uh, this morning to spend considerable time discussing uh, times and dating and order of events before Jesus returns, much to some of your uh, surprise this morning. There are no picture charts of rapture or tribulation going to be spelled out on the wall behind me, though I will admit the first four months or so of 2020 have had a bit of an apocalyptic feel uh, for many of us. But th- That's not the the point. The point isn't to get things in a proper order. Uh, The the point isn't uh, to be able to specifically date the times when all this is going to happen. The emphasis is simply on the fact that Jesus has declared that he will return, and when he returns, these new heavens and new earth will come with him. Now, I know that seems like a commonsensical point, but isn't there the ease with all of us to lose sight of this reality? Like we get so captured, so enamored by our present reality that it's uh, difficult at times for us to get our brains out to this future tense reality, that there is something coming uh, that is altogether different. Secondly, the new heavens and new earth are real. Or maybe I could have said they're, they're, they're tangible. So the descriptions that we see here are, are physical, concrete. Much like the world that we inhabit now and the world that God created at the outset. So while we might surmise certain you know, animals and trees and flowers that will be in heaven, the specifics of all of that are not what's important. But what is important is that it will be tangible. It will be, it will be real. As with our physical bodies, there is a physical reality to the world that we will inhabit one day. Like Donnie said last week, we, we will not be angels in heaven, nor will the world that we inhabit be some hologram projection or some upside-down reality. 
just as a bit of an aside this week because we've got to find ways to entertain ourselves on Zoom, right? Because we're all having Zoom meetings, uh, uh, too, too many Zoom meetings to go around. So me and a pastor friend in Columbia were participating in a meeting and we said, hey, so every time somebody says certain phrases, we're going to take a big swig of coffee together. Like it's our running joke throughout the meeting because there are predictable phrases in the evangelical meeting space right now. Things like a strange new world or a new normal or this present moment, right? There are predictable phrases that we're going to hear in all of our meetings and space. So it provided a great 60 minutes of entertainment for us as we laughed at the repeated phrase. Well, this is a sip of the cup moment for strange Netflix illusion, right? If you call it to my upside down reality, stranger things, uh, we're not inhabiting some type of stranger things projection of what is going to come. We're landing on a physical, a, a real world that it seems that, that John really grasped at finding language to describe this concrete, tangible reality. Look in Revelation 21, 21. 12 gates. He goes to great lengths. If you're reading this passage and you're thinking back to the Old Testament, you're like, this description really reminds me of the temple, the description that's, that's there describing God's dwelling place among the people in the Old Testament. In verse 21, we see the 12 gates, 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Then over in 22, verses 1 through 3, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city streets. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. So what we see here throughout these descriptions is of a, a physical world that we, can, that we can touch, that we can access, that we can see. It points our attention back to Genesis 1 and 2 of very similar descriptions of God's created order in the first place. If you look back, I won't read these verses this morning, but if you look back in the skippable paragraph in Genesis 2, beginning about verse 8 and extending to verse 14, you see a very similar description of the original created order. A tree uh, in the garden, these rivers that are described as flowing out. This is, in the end, a picture of a tree and a river that would give life in a new world, much like the garden. The language that God uses to, uh, that John uses to describe this coming world is concrete, specific. But it does border on the edge of human language to describe. This is one of the places where Calvin's famous statement that God uh, condescends for us to speak human baby language is applicable. Like that the way you would kind of jabber at a 10 month old, make cutesy faces and nonsensical sounds back and forth. He writes that this is what God is doing and putting himself in, in terms that humans can access and can understand. We see this uh, baby speak for us and descriptions that the best of humans have, gold is gonna be like the paving material in heaven. The sea is going to be as crystal. God, through John, is inviting readers to imagine a world 
that is like the world they inhabit, but altogether better. Thirdly, this new heaven and new earth will be perfected. They're perfected. One of the ways this real, tangible, new world will be beyond our imagination is that all that is evil will be removed. We see this repeatedly in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. I read one place earlier in verse 4 of our text this morning. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful picture, right? It's the, the picture of a of a father or mother uh, with a child with a skint knee, caring for and wiping away this emotion. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Why? Because the previous things, these things that are evil, have passed away. In chapter 22, verse 3, perhaps the greatest hope for us, kind of hidden in these verses, there will no longer be any curse. No longer be any curse. In chapter 21, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Again, allusions back to to Noah and the ark. Nothing unclean is ever going to come in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So consider, no broken world and no broken people, right? This is a world that's perfected of disease, of sickness, or pain. And it's a world that we see right now primarily through contrast. Remember, we talked about this in an earlier sermon, that we experience things. I I think I was making the point about the fatherly character of God, and I was saying that you understand God as Father either by comparison or contrast. You either say, uh, I had a good godly father, and when I think of God, I think of him in comparison uh, to my earthly father. Or you think of God in contrast. You say, my earthly father wasn't this, this, and this, and what I longed for, for in my earthly father, I see in contrast in God as father. Well, our experience of this eternal reality, we, we access now primarily in contrast. We see a world that is broken under the effects of the curse. And that causes us to long for an eternal reality that is altogether different. Paul writes in Romans 8 that this world is groaning, right? It is crying out in labor pain, longing for deliverance of the brokenness that we experience. And we see that in in everything around us. This world is, is breaking down, now, much like many of you, I assume. I've spread a few bags of mulch during quarantine. Wouldn't it be great to mulch your yard once for all of life, right? This is not the way it works. You're constantly landscaping. Why? Because thorns and thistles, things break down. Storms come and wash away. And so we're constantly having to correct the effects of the fall or Uh, the storm systems of our recent weeks, right? The tornadoes in Seneca uh, and other places a week or so ago, and then last night's uh, realm of storms, we see that brokenness harnesses creation and wreaks chaos in the world. 
And so we think, hey, this, this heavenly reality is going to be the opposite of kind of sitting in your basement, cowering in fear at a world out to destroy. This new reality is going to be one in which perfection is normative and is the only reality. What's going what's to happen? How, how are we going to get to there? This passage from 2 Peter 3 is going to help us with our next idea. Um, there Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 10, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, uh, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay in keeping his promises, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to experience or to come to repentance. So he's making explanation for why the Lord is tearing. Like, why are these new heavens and new earth not coming now? Then he writes in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will, be, will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and its works will be disclosed. This is the CSB translation of that text. That language at the end of verse 10 is one that's translated differently in different biblical passages and can lead you to some mental places that are not all that helpful. The language here is that fire will purify, right? That on this coming day, the, the earth will be burnt up, not meaning destroyed, rendered obsolete, but meaning purified, protected the way uh, Fire would purify a costly metal. It gives us access to what is, what is pure, what is beautiful, what is wholesome. So all that is broken, all that causes tears, will be obliterated. And then fourthly, uh, the new heavens and new earth are here. Now, I don't like my term, and you shouldn't say that as a pastor, but I couldn't get to a better one uh, for this fourth point, because what the, the point I want to make is here in contrast with there. Here in contrast with there, and I know that seems commonsensical, so let me explain. Up to this point, we've probably been moving a bit nicely with some of what you've heard or thought about heaven. All right, it's future, it's tangible, it's perfected. But this final point's a, a bit more jarring uh, for many of us to think about the new heavens and new earth being here. I, I grew up in a world that, you know, I would describe kind of as a go-to-heaven-when-you-die world. Either you die and go to heaven, or this world ends and you go to heaven. We even, you know, had the songs, right? I'll fly away, oh glory. That pictures... This world ending, and somehow I mystically go to heaven. This isn't altogether the picture that we see in Revelation 21 or 22, and Donnie alluded to this point last week. We saw uh, in our text this morning, in verse 2, this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 10 and 11 carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. The Bible presents this new heavens and new earth reality as one in which uh, new heaven and new earth will come, come down, that it will be present here, not so much us being present 
there. It might help for you to think of this in stages, again, picking up on some ideas from last week. Though these stages are not concrete and uh, clearly delineated, it at least helps my, my mind to capture this. Like stage one, right now God is in heaven, or what we would typically describe as heaven. And believers who die go to, to heaven and are consciously in the presence of God but somehow not yet having their fully renewed bodies in that present. Stage two, God brings heaven to earth when Jesus returns. And with that comes renewed bodies given to believers with whom or who reign with God in this new world that God has made. So yes, there is a sense at which I, as a believer, go to heaven when I die. But there's also the reality that at this coming moment when Jesus returns, heaven comes to earth. The language of heaven and earth being no more throughout this text. They're they're renewed as one. Heaven, quite literally, meets earth. All sloppy wet kisses aside. Sip of coffee here for controversial worship song lyrics, if you're tracking with us. This new heaven and new earth come down. New heavens and new earth become one. The kingdom comes here on earth, as we're invited in Jesus' prayer, as it is in heaven. This place that God has been preparing will come down, and it is in this renewed world we will rule and reign with God forever. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that we consider uh, the place that we think future tense, uh, it is going to come, it's real, it's tangible, it's going to be perfected or purified, and, and it's, it's here, it it's envelops all that is, heaven and earth are renewed, restored in this cosmos that we inhabit. Why why does that matter? I'm going to suggest to you nine rapid-fire reasons that I think this matters. And nine here is a a lesson this morning in pastoral integrity. When you have nine reasons, you don't make up one more reason so that you have a nice top ten list. So we are this morning going to have a top nine list why this matters, because my mind had nine reasons that it matters. Why, does, why do uh, thoughts of this new heaven and new earth matter? Suggest them to you quickly. Uh, Phil's going to uh, both show a slide that you can see as well as put those in the chat box because I'm going I'm to rattle them off quickly. And uh, here's my challenge to you. I want you to take these points of application and talk about them with somebody this week. Uh, whether you're in a community group, whether you're in a small group environment, whether it's just a Zoom call with a friend, whether it's a neighborhood walk, Uh, with somebody, with your family. I want you to reflect on these themes in community with someone this week. First, considerations of eternity are an act of worship. Or said specifically as a challenge for you, consider eternity as an act of worship. Paul writes in Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God are seen in his creation. We can know something about God from what he has made. As such, the visible attributes of God 
are seen in his recreative work. What we um, see in these pictures of this coming reality tell us a little bit more about who God is and what he is like in our interface with him in this world. So while it may feel like considerations of heaven are a great waste of time, let me invite you to consider in the very same way that we would think of God's original creation act and the world that we inhabit showing us something about his attributes, considerations of what he is going to do to restore all things, even if we see them in microscopic form, help us to reflect on the God who we worship uh, in this life. Secondly, treasure natural beauty in this world as a precursor of what's to come. Treasure natural beauty in this world as a precursor of what's to come. The best of this earth, flowers, animals, picturesque scenery, lakes, rivers, they are meant to do something to our soul. They're meant to evoke in us images and reflections of heaven. For Matt, that's uh, standing with a fly rod in a trout stream and watching uh, the mist rise off of the river, listening to the bubbling, the sounds, and watching the sun rise uh, over a mountain river in north. For Sarah, it's uh, walking in Turkey and picking fresh fruit off of trees and a downtown urban context. There, there's something fascinating about the world that God has made that is uniquely for each of us in the congregation going to draw our minds to get above the clouds of this life. Perhaps it's one of the reasons why being outdoors is so restorative to many people. The effects of seeing the world that God has made. So particularly in this season, let me invite you, if, you're, if you feel kind of doom and gloom this morning, if you feel pressed down, feel weighted down, uh, one of the best ways to stir your soul to worship is to spend time observing the world that God has made. Thirdly, uh, spend time learning to rest and enjoy God's world. Spend time learning to rest and enjoy God's world. We work, most of us, to unravel the implications of the fall. Much like um, that, uh, that strand of Christmas lights that you throw in a box every year that gets uh, bound up and you spend two hours when you get your Christmas tree or do whatever, I mean, if you, you're actually uh, mature and you get like a live Christmas tree and not one of those fake kind, uh, you spend hours like trying to unravel the strand of lights on the tree. Most, many of our, our, our occupations, much of what we do on any given day is spent attempting to, to unravel the implications of the fall. Our work eternally will be spent harnessing good. It will be spent enjoying the world that God has made. There will not so much be a problem to fix as a God to enjoy, a creation to steward. So learn to rest and enjoy the world that God has put you in here. Look behind the idol of constant busyness and the 
compulsion of never being able to sit still. Remember that in the gospel, we are presented with a God who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The constant press of having to work to access favor with God is removed and we can dwell securely in God's great love for us in Christ. And as such, we as people living in this world, though we can't do it constantly, we can learn to live in rest and enjoyment even as we unravel the implications of the fall. Fourth, give thanks for moments in this life when heaven seems to meet earth. Give thanks for moments in this life when heaven seems to meet earth. Let me press you uh, in tension here. Celebrate those moments, but try not to expect them. Celebrate those moments when heaven meets earth, when the rays of the sun break through a cloudy day. But understand, as we'll talk about in a moment, that this is not the normative experience for life in a fallen world. And what that should do, what I hope it does for us, is it grows our capacity, like, like stretching a balloon. It grows our heart's capacity to be thankful for the joys and temporal pleasures that we experience in this life. We appreciate and we show appreciation for those who bring those moments about. And we praise God, like actually praise God, for moments of temporal kindness, generosity, beauty that we get to experience. Fifth, invest your life and work. At, I'm sorry, invest your life in work that points to heaven. Invest your life in work that points forward to heaven. Make life, make your investment in life, heavenly for those who are around you. Have a, a specific intent on the work that you are doing uh, to be the kind of person that in your presence and in your proclamation is bringing the good news message and the good news demonstration of the gospel here. Good meals, orderly flower beds, the beauty of the world, a cup of hot coffee in the morning. This is particularly relevant for those of you who are on the front end of careers, as many uh, in our congregation are. Consider how you can leverage your life to spend your time making this earth a bit of a foretaste of heaven. What about your reality, the way that you teach and train others, the way that you steward your job, gives a sense of I'm bringing order and beauty from chaos. And as such, I'm doing something that's significant as a sign and pointer to what is to come. Six, train those you love to see God's work in the world. Train those you love to see God's work in the world. Uh, a few months back, maybe it's been a year uh, now, some of the men went hiking, I believe, at Table Rock, and I happened to be uh, walking with one of our members, uh, Andrew Elwan, uh on the, the hike, and, and he knows a thing or two about the outdoors, specifically about mushrooms. 
And so as we're walking, he's pointing out like, man, that mushroom is awesome. We're going to eat. We're going to take that back and we're going to put it on the grill and we're going to put it on our cheeseburger. But if you eat that mushroom, you're going to die. Right. And so it's like somebody that that's trained to see can help others see. If you're a parent, if you're a small group leader, if you're a business owner, one of your responsibilities in discipling and taking spiritual authority, responsibility for those that are around you, is train them to see God's handiwork in all things. As you see beauty, as you see order, as you see art, as you hear good music, that we're able to point to the thing beyond the thing or the person beyond the thing to say, do you notice this? What does this cause us to believe about who God is? Seventh, endure suffering with hope as you await your best life later. Sip of coffee there to bad religious books. Endure suffering with hope as you await your best life later. If you are in Christ, there is a good day coming. A day when this world and you will be perfected from sin and brokenness. And as a result, we can endure suffering with hope that something really good awaits. Like a mom forgetting the labor pains or enduring the labor pains or suffering through the labor pains because of the hope that awaits in the birth of knowing that the hope of a perfected eternity awaits. This is a best life later. Eighth, pursue contentment in all things. Pursue contentment in all things. There's a sense at which we endure suffering with hope, awaiting our best life later, because we recognize that suffering and brokenness are normative in this world. We come to expect that things are going to be broken and out of whack. So we uh, are able to endure. We're able to be content in the circumstances that God has us. We're able to live as people who are not grabby for temporal pleasures. We don't have to have all of that now because we can wait this future world that is coming. And then ninth, live with excitement for the coming world. Live with excitement for this coming world. Perhaps the best parallel that, that we have access to is like uh, building your new home on this picture-perfect piece of land that you've been saving for to enjoy in your retirement. There's a sense at which you're filtering all of your experiences in the moment through this coming reality that you are going to be able to enjoy. It gives you great ability to endure suffering or to enjoy just uh, what feels like frailty in this life because there's something really good coming. Well, the hope of all things being made new is meant to incite excitement for God's people. We're meant to be children on Christmas Eve kind of people for this heavenly reality. I don't think it's any wonder that this is the way John leaves us in Revelation 20, 22, verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. 
And what's the echo? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I don't think it's lost on us, the, the exclamation marks that dot that, right? There's this leaning in excitement that this that is coming, the best I can get my head around, it's going to be even better. When's the last time you prayed that, that Jesus would come back soon? When's the last time you found yourself just with soul-stirring excitement for a world that brokenness and sin would be no more? When's the last time you got really bad news, discouraging, frustrating, and you, in a moment of reflection, were able to, to pause and to collect yourself and endure with hope? because you knew that there's something great on the horizon. Church, this is the hope that moves us out into a broken world. It's the hope that allows us to endure the complexities of life, that we will, on a future day, inhabit a real world that is perfected from sin and is present among us. And on that day, we will see fully, even as we are fully known. This morning, we're going to end with a time of reflection through song. Lenny and Jess are going to lead us again to consider uh, our hope in the gospel, our hope in Christ, and hopefully to posture your heart with building excitement somewhat akin, I hope, to the excitement that you have for when the church will gather again one day, for when we'll all be back together again, for when we're not going to have... Uh, unsynced music playing through our computer interfaces. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for that. In fact, I can almost promise you I won't be able to sing that day. You guys know I'm crying anyway. That, that there is soul-stirring excitement for when this room is not empty again. In the same way, let me invite you, maybe perhaps even greater than that, uh, that this reality that we're pointing to is meant to draw your heart to worship, to send you to sleep at night with excitement for what God is going to do as he makes all things new. Join us as we sing and reflect together. Church, as you join us as we sing one last song, we're going to sing the hymn version of King of Love.
pray with us. God, we thank you that you are our king and you are the king of love. We praise you. We love you. We trust you. We pray that you would teach us to love you and trust you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.